Good morning. If you would please stand with me and grab your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back pocket in front of you. Uh, we're going to be on page 320 in that Bible today. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Some of y'all have been wondering why in the world you were seeing my wonderful, beautiful face today instead of uh, Pastor Mark or Pastor David. Uh, they're off on an elders retreat this morning. Uh, so I would like to ask all of you today that as you, you leave this place and you go on about your business, that you would take time to pray for them, that, that this time that they're out there having a retreat together, that it would be edifying and encouraging to them, uh, that the Lord would give them a fresh vision for where he wants them to take us as a congregation this year in 2019. Um, so we're going to go ahead and read God's word together. It says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A cord, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You may be seated this morning. <clears throat> so it's widely uh, thought and believed that the words that I just read were written by the great and wise King Solomon. King Solomon, of course, the son of the great King David. Everybody knows about him. The little shepherd boy with, made famous with a little slingshot and a rock, knocking out a big, mighty Goliath giant, right? Well, his son, Solomon, wrote these words today. King Solomon, the builder of God's temple. Uh, King Solomon is known outside of Jesus, of course, uh, to be both the wisest and the richest man of all of, in all of human history. There's not anybody else, not Bill Gates, not Donald Trump. Nobody in all of human history has amassed as much wealth as the great King Solomon has. He was always sought after for his wisdom by uh, governments all over the place during his uh, particular day. So I believe we, too, would be wise this morning uh, to heed his advice. Two are better than one. Why would Solomon say such a thing to us? Well, I believe that God in his sovereignty is speaking to us through him this morning to teach us a lesson about community. And the title of our talk today is Christian Growth is a Community Project. Christian Growth is a, a community project, which begs us to look at a, a word study this morning. That word we're going to study together is called fellowship. So when I say the word fellowship, what, what comes to mind? So I was talking with a friend of mine at the house the other day, and I asked her, I said, you know, when I say the word fellowship to you, what, what brings up to your mind? The first thing she thought of was casseroles, right? So we're thinking potlucks, man. We're thinking, we're thinking movie nights. Well, I'm always thinking with my stomach, so naturally I'm going to be thinking casseroles too, right? Um, so we're, we're thinking movie nights. We're thinking Bible studies. But the type of community that the Bible talks about here goes way deeper than just occupying the same space together or sharing the word of God together. This implies a deep community, the kind of community we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 there. And it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. See, the Bible tells us it was a community of all who believed. That means a, a people that loved Jesus and viewed that love of Jesus as the very basis for their entire existence. It's a community of, that, that lived life together. They didn't live separate and ineffectual lives. And a community that had, quote, all things in common. That means that they shared as anyone who had need. And, and they took only what they needed and nothing more. And they bared one another's burdens in love. This was a deeply spiritual fellowship that permeated every aspect of their lives. The kind of fellowship that stems from a completely new and transformed life. This is what happens when we meet Jesus. He draws us into this kind of fellowship with the body of Christ. I'm, I'm going to share with you a little, little insight here. It, it wasn't just to restore you 
and me to right and reconciled relationship with God the Father that Jesus died. Don't get me wrong, that was absolutely accomplished too. We are absolutely restored and renewed in the eyes of the Father. When God looks at us, when we are in Christ Jesus, he no longer sees the sinner that we are. He sees Jesus in our stead. But, but hear me, folks. Jesus died to build his church. That was the reason that Jesus died. He died to create a new people. Back in Jesus' day, the Hebrews and the Gentiles, man, they, they hated each other severely. And this reconciliation that we have through Christ's death now, as Paul says, toward down the dividing wall of hostility. That allows us to enter into the type of fellowship that the Bible is calling us to today, that God calls us to when we are in Christ Jesus. We're, the, we're now the children of God. We're now, from many peoples, we're now one new people under him. And this people that Jesus died to establish, we were meant and we were made, rather, we were knit together in our mother's womb for community. And we were meant to be a, a different type of community than you see elsewhere in the world. We were meant to be a community whose soul bond together. The, the main thing that links us all together is that each of us put all of our trust and hope for sustenance, for provision, for salvation in Jesus and in Jesus alone. See, the text today leads us to ask the following practical questions. Firstly, what is koinonia or spiritual fellowship? That word koinonia might have sounded like I just sneezed or something, but actually it's a, it's a Greek word that simply means fellowship. But that spiritual fellowship actually means that it's the, it's the common life that we share in Jesus. You see, Jesus tells us that in, in John chapter 15 that he is the vine and that we are the branches and that we are to abide in him as, as he abides in us. We are, we are grafted into the vine that is Jesus from the moment of belief. For those of you who are not professional horticulturists or, or not professional farmers or grape growers this morning, allow me to explain this a little bit more in depth for you. You see, oftentimes in, in Jesus' day, growing, wine, growing grapes for wine was a huge thing. And oftentimes there would be, you know, droughts and other weather conditions that would cause these branches to, to dry up and break off and die. So, in order to save the potentially fruitful branch, what the, the farmer would do would, would be to come out and graft this vine back into, uh, this branch back into the vine by taking a, a knife and cutting a, a sliver into the healthy vine. And taking a, a piece of that, that dead, seemingly dead branch, of course, and then meshing it together and taking a piece of twine or, or other rope or something and, and meshing it together and tying it together to hold it together in place, thus allowing the, the water and other nutrients from the living vine to flow into the dead branch, bringing it back to life. This, this is how we're tapped into the power of the Holy Spirit from the moment that we believe. We're not tacked onto the vine with a nail to, so, to have some sort of outward appearance of, of looking like we belong to it, but having no real uh, share in the life of it. Rather, we are grafted into the life that flows from the vine that sustains us and produces growth, growth and the bearing of fruit. So very clearly, Jesus tells us through the Apostle John that apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. We could try to walk out this Christian life in our flesh. And for a time, you, you may have some measure of success in, in fighting indwelling sin. You may be able to, may be able to put aside your, your pride and selfishness. You might be able to hide your greedy or, or um, envious tendencies, if you will, at least for a while. But if all you are doing is modifying your behavior in order to win God's approval or to make your spouse and your family happy, if you're not filled with grief over your sin and longing for Jesus to come and set you free, if behavioral modification is your only goal, and Jesus says you're doing nothing more than whitewashing a tomb or dressing up a corpse. Jesus goes on to tell us that this is my commandment, that you have love for one another as I have loved you. And how, how has Jesus loved us? 
Well, Paul tells us that he demonstrated his love for us by laying down his life for us. We cannot lay our lives down for one another. We can't lay our lives down for people that we are not in relational community with. You know, I, I, I love being a dad. It's by far and away the, the greatest blessing that God has ever bestowed upon me to be Jackson and Mahalia's dad. And I, like any other parent in this room, if I was to see Jackson running in the street outside there and a car coming, there's nothing on this earth that would stop me from moving fast enough to knock that kid out of the way and take the hit by the car. I I love him like that. Parents love their kids like that. Dying for our kids is an easy thing. It's the most natural act any human being can engage in. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert for your life story here. All right, you ready for it? Every single person in this room, every one of you, if you're breathing right now at some point, you're going to die. Did y'all know that? I know it's, it's shocking. It freaked me out to find that out a couple of weeks ago. But, but it's true. Apparently, apparently we're all going to die someday. So that being said, it's a natural act to give our life for them in that manner. What's, what's not a natural act, what's, what's difficult, is getting up three to four or five times in the middle of the night due to severe diaper rash. It's not easy dealing with a colicky kid. It's not easy dealing with a three-nager who wants to tell you you're wrong every time you turn around. Even if you're like, hey, little kids, you want some ice cream? No, I don't want some ice cream. That's difficult to lay your life down in that manner. It's difficult, dads and moms, to get up and go and work a 60-hour work week, come home after a 12- or 14-hour day and put food on the table. It's difficult and hard for us to get up early on a Sunday morning, dads and moms, and show our kids that, Fellowship with the communion of the saints, the body of believers, is an important thing. That's, that's hard. That, that's an unnatural act for human beings. We must be connected to the body of Christ to carry out Christ's command to love one another. Jesus, Jesus is the end. Jesus is the end, and his power is the means by which we enter into and maintain spiritual fellowship with one another. So why is spiritual fellowship important? Now that we know what spiritual fellowship is, why, why is it important? Well, spiritual fellowship is a preferred status. The text tells us that two are better than one. This passage was, uh, was used in the sermon at Narcy and I's wedding. And it's often used at weddings. Um, and it, but it refers here, the context that I'm using here, it refers to uh, the relational fellowship that we have in Christ. You see, the text is not meant, as some have used, uh, to promote being married over being single as a preferred status of living. Nor does the Bible condemn marriage in favor of singleness, but rather the text here is promoting biblical fellowship. It's speaking to the relational side of spiritual fellowship. It's saying that it is better to be in community than to not be in community. Two are better than one. When God created the world, he created man, he created everything, and he said that it was good, and it was good until he came to the point where he saw that man was alone. And God said that it is not good that man should be alone. So God made man for community. For fellowship, for partnership. Why? Well, the text tells us that that they may have a good reward for their toil. We're to be in partnership with one another so that our our toil, our work, will have a greater reward. Can we do things on our own? Absolutely, yes. But we're not meant to walk this Christian life thing out by ourselves, folks. God is saying that we will have a greater reward when we work together. And when when we work together, we, we share the reward, right? We share the benefits when we partner with one another. But we also share the burdens, some of you may be walking around having some really heavy stuff that you're dealing with in life. You're like, man, I really wish I could have some help. The help is here in the body of Christ when we have fellowship with one another. When we have share in the reward and we have share in the burdens. You know, the, the Bible tells us that any one of us that has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need of that help and withholds those goods, that the love of God cannot abide in him. 
That's not how this works, folks. Koinonia is about the communal sharing of burdens and in so doing, fulfilling the law of Christ. The other reason why it's important is that this community is, is for our encouragement. For it says, for if they, one falls, he will whip, lift up his fellow. That word fellow there is translated loosely to mean associate or companion, friend, a, a fellow worshiper. The best part of being in spiritual fellowship is getting to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. The assurance we have from the communion we have in Jesus should lead us to encourage each other daily. And the writer of Hebrews says it like this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. And how do we stir up one another to love and good works? By sitting on the couch at the house, watching a YouTube video of like our favorite people like Matt Chandler or somebody like that. Right. Right. No. By meeting together, by not neglecting to meet together. We stir up one another to love and good works by by coming together as the body of Christ. So what does this look like played out in the life of the believer? What does this look like? When I was doing my study for our time together, I I read a a book, of course, because I'm a reader and and Mark likes to give me books for free. And, hey, I'll I'll read it, right? So the the book that I read was called True Community by a guy named uh, Jerry Bridges. And and in that book, Jerry Bridges says that that this, this life gets walked out, this community, this fellowship plays itself out in the life of the believer in the following four ways. The first of which, the sharing of biblical truth, the application and revelation of Scripture. He says, and I quote, it is the application of Scripture, not just the academic knowledge of it, that makes it fruitful in our lives. It's the application of Scripture, not just the academic knowledge of it, that makes it fruitful in our lives. When I first uh, began my training uh, for preaching, uh, I was very... (laughs) Very zealous about sharing the, the wonderful knowledge I gained through my studies in the Word and going to school. But in my, my zeal to share my newfound information, I neglected what the Holy Spirit was showing me through those scriptures. You see, the most important piece of any sermon or any talk that we can have amongst brothers and sisters in Christ is the revelation of the truth of the gospel. That revelation is the impact that that truth has on my life and your life. How it causes you to do something as a result of it. So we're supposed to When we meet as the body of Christ, we share the life-transforming power of the gospel with one another. We're supposed to encourage each other by sharing what God is doing in my life, in your life. When we say things like, you know, I've I've been wrestling with this this whole thing of, you know, I I do what I want to do. I I don't do what I want to do, but I do what I don't want to do, like Paul talks about in Romans. Like, man, I don't understand, dude. I'm I'm wrestling with this. I, I, I used to not care how much I was... I was smoking or drinking or whatever. It used to not bother me how angry I would get at people. It used to not bother me to get upset with my kids. But, man, I'm wrestling with this stuff. That's the, the sort of thing that we share with one another. Because when you share that stuff, it encourages me and goes, man, you know, me too, dude. I have a hard time getting with my wife and my kids and praying over them. Uh, it feels awkward sometimes, man. It's not, it's not easy. That's how we encourage one another by sharing what's going on so that we can pray for one another and encourage each other and say, dude, you know what? Yeah, it's awkward, man. It's hard. But do keep doing it, man. It's going to get less awkward as time goes by. And even if it doesn't, oh, well, you'll all be awkward together and love Jesus together. And that's great and beautiful, right? Of course. So <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to share a little news flash with you folks. Um, when I first came to church, before I came to church, I used to hate people. I'm, I mean, like hate people. I used to, to stay at home by myself all the time. Didn't want to go out. Didn't want to talk to nobody. Uh, I was a closet drinker. Stayed at home drinking by myself all the time. I didn't like anybody. 
And when I first came to church, I thought every single one of you were nothing more than a bunch of Kool-Aid drinking weirdos. You were smiling all the time. Everybody was happy. And then there were dudes walking around with cancer saying the joy of the Lord is in my heart. It is not well with my body, but it's well with my soul. I'm like, you're freaking me out, dude. Stop it. The only one out of all of y'all that I liked at all was Narcy, and that's because she's beautiful, she's sweet, and she was just crazy enough to say yes all 37 times I asked her to marry me. <laughs> but a weird thing happened. The more I came, the more I got to hang out with, you know, with, with Ron Weller, with, with Pastor Mark, with Brother Daryl, with Pastor Dave. A weird thing started happening to me. The more I hung out with folks like Robbie Abney, they, God started to change my heart. That once that heart that was once of stone that used to be filled with distrust and disdain and anxiety about other human beings was was softened and replaced with a heart of flesh, a heart that was filled and moved to compassion for the image and likeness of Almighty God and I see in other people. This is one of the ways that the Lord sanctifies sanctifies us or changes us into the image of His Son. See, Chuck Spurgeon said it best that we can we can study Scripture, folks. We can know all of the doctrines. You can know that book, know every and it, the and the from from Genesis to Revelation. Not one bit of that will save you. Only knowing Jesus can do that. Listen, folks, the the order of operations here is is simple, but it's important that we we get this information plus revelation leads to transformation. Information in and of itself is not transformative. Some of you may be reading the Bible and you're like, man, I, I, I read the words and I, I, I'm done. Like two seconds later, I don't, I don't get it. I don't see, I don't understand what's going on and I'm not seeing the impact of that, that truth in my life. We have to beg God for that revelation. You hear us all the time around here saying things like, Lord, give me eyes to see and, and ears to hear. That's what we're talking about. That revelation only comes from the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that anyone, anyone who asks for God for wisdom, it'll be given to them. Anyone who cries out on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We have to beg God for this wisdom, for this revelation. Only knowing Christ can change that. Sharing this biblical truth of information plus revelation leads to transformation. Sharing biblical truth with each other changes lives. The second way that this plays itself out in the life of the believer is our openness with one another. When we talk about confession to repentance, you see, James tells us to confess our sins to one another. And pray for one another that we might be healed. So why are we to confess our sins to one another so that we can like lord it over each other's head and make each other feel more miserable and guilty than we already do? No, no. So that we can be healed. Right. Listen, some of you here this morning may be carrying a burden of harboring unforgiveness towards somebody in your past. Some of you here this morning may have hurt somebody and it's eaten you up inside. Confession sets us free from the bondage that sin places us under and it brings healing to the believer. Spiritual fellowship requires a type of intimacy that allows us to share our struggles with one another without fear of condemnation. So do me a favor. Don't don't leave here today after the service and go grab some random person and start confessing all your junk to them. That's seriously that is that is foolish at best and very dangerous at worst. We don't enter into that kind of relationship with just anybody. We don't confess our sins to just anyone. The Puritans. You know, some of y'all are like, dude, he just mentioned the Puritans. Are you for real, dude? Yes, seriously, I just mentioned the Puritans. The Puritans back in the day would, would beg God for what they called bosom friends, or as my, my wife likes to call them probably a little bit more appropriately, uh, nicknamed heart friends. That's a, the type of friend that we can share absolutely everything with. They used to beg God for this type of friend because they knew the truth that Paul shared with us in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. That no temptation has seized us except that which is common to man. We need to ask God for this type of friend to share these, these temptations that we share in common. 
with each other, to, to confess to one another, to pray with each other. And when we find this person, when we find him or her, we need to be willing to open our lives to them. And the third way that this plays itself out in the life of the believer is through accountability, admonition, and mutual submission. And I, I don't know about you all, but that, that word accountability sends chills down my spine. Um, it freaks me out to think that I have to have to maintain accountability with anyone. And it, and it makes me hearken back or think back on a time in the church where there would be small life groups that would get together and they would call themselves accountability groups. I'm sure that many of you in this room have, have heard of them before, but for those of you who haven't, you know, we would get together and we would share just enough of our sin struggles to satisfy the need for confession to one another, right? But only the sins that weren't too bad, like cussing or, you know, getting angry behind the wheel, getting mad at technology or when you're having to put a, a TV up on the fireplace and mount or something like that. Sounds like I've done that before, maybe even yesterday. Um <laughs> But only the sins that weren't too bad, right? And these, these groups rarely, if ever, led to any genuine repentance and heart change, in my experience anyway. Not because the, the, the idea, the concept of, of accountability groups is wrong or useless or anything, but because the people that were engaged in them, myself in particular, didn't have any real concept of what it was supposed to look like to have mutual submission and accountability with one another. Accountability with one another. We had no idea what it looked like to be mutually submissive to anyone or what admonition even meant. So in Colossians 3.16, the Apostle Paul tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. What, is that, what does that look like? Well, partially it looks like what we did this morning, right? It looks like singing songs together and praying with one another. But it also goes a little bit deeper than that. It requires a, a mutual submission to one another, a submission that we are to give to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this submission is crucial in order to have a discipling relationship with, with one another because discipleship is always a two-way street between believers. It's always a two-way street. Some of you this morning may be sitting here thinking, man, I've got nothing to offer anybody in a discipling relationship. But I'm here to tell you that notion could not be further from the truth. Listen, whether you have been walking with Jesus for three to five minutes or three to five decades, you have been specifically placed here by God Almighty himself for the mutual building up of the saints. New believers tend to, to look on to, to Scripture with, with fresh eyes. They, they, they come alongside you and they say, dude, did you know that that was even in there? While older Christians, those who have walked with Jesus a longer time, bring insight and wisdom. And the enthusiasm and the encouragement possessed by the new believer in their excitement about being freshly saved, they... Through the Holy Spirit, they're, they're giving us the eyes, fresh eyes, to look anew on the Holy Scriptures. Mutual submission is a requirement of all Christ's followers. And it's necessary for training in the pursuit of holiness and humility. And when we hear that word admonishment, folks, that, that word admonishment in fellowship is simply the reminding of one beggar by another beggar where the really good bread is. It's a pointing back of each other to Jesus for all our needs of sustenance and hope. The Bible tells us that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. This, this accountability is how that sharpening is done. Fourthly, it, this plays itself out in the life of the believer by praying together. You see, the, the fruits of righteousness are preceded and proceeded from prayer. The fruits of righteousness means love, patience, forbearance, all that good stuff is preceded and proceeded from prayer. When I first became a Christian, one of the things I, I often felt most awkward about was praying with other people. It seemed wrong, in a sense, to, to do something so intimate with people that I, I barely even knew. But as Christians, there's no other activity 
in which we should more willingly or quickly and routinely engage in than praying together. There's real life-altering, world-changing power in the prayers of the body of Christ. I stand before you today as physically healed and spiritually healthy because of the power of prayer. For example, I, I used to smoke for about 15 years. And at some stressful points in my life, up to five packs a day. I know it sounds like a lot. But I tried everything. Uh, you can ask my mom. She actually helped me with some of this. Uh, I've, I've tried the patches. We tried the, we tried the pills. I tried hypnosis. I tried smoker cessation classes. You name it, I tried all of it. But I never saw any real breakthrough until one day I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to this men's retreat. And then a bunch of Jesus-loving dudes surrounded me in a circle and brought me before the body of elders, and they laid hands on me, and they prayed over me. And I'm not kidding you folks, you couldn't make this up. Within about five days after that, I wasn't even vaping anymore. The power of prayer works. It works. It breaks strongholds. It sets captives free. It binds together the community of believers, and it is the catalyst for true koinonia. Some of you in here maybe having some struggles relationally with, with your spouse or maybe some of your kids. And I'm, I'm going to give you a tool to take with you today here so that you can say that I didn't, you can't say I didn't give you nothing, right? Okay. So if you're having issues relationally speaking with your spouse or your kids or, or a friend or family member, pray with them. Pray together with them. If they're a believer, pray together with them. You can't pray for someone without growing stronger together. Prayer knits together the community of faith. So why do we... So who, who do we enter into spiritual fellowship with? Now that we've talked about why we need to okay, and, and what the benefits of it are, who do, who's the type of person, what, what defines a, a heart friend, if you will, right? Well, the type of person you want to enter into this kind of relationship with, uh, Jerry Bridges tells us, the, gives us this kind of criteria. He says, first, they need to demonstrate a, a hunger for the Lord and for his word and loving others. Sounds kind of ominous, almost like it was in chronological order for a reason, right? have a hunger for the Lord, which leads to a hunger for his word. Listen, folks, um, if you're spending daily time in the word and you are talking with God and you are praying every day and that that time in the word and that time in prayer is not leading you to a deeper level of compassion for those who are lost. If it's not leading you to a deeper level of compassion for other human beings, something is wrong. Something is disconnected there. Being in the word and following Jesus changes your heart and makes you love people and it makes you long to be around the body of Christ because those people, those image bearers that you see, that's somebody Jesus died for. He loved them enough to lay his life completely down for them. We should too. The second thing they should possess, the second characteristic they should possess is an objective empathy to identify with your personal sin struggles and, and temptations without, without giving you pity. Thirdly, they need to be able to maintain your confidentiality. You don't want you don't want to confess your stuff to to have somebody run out on FaceySpace or MyBook or whatever they're calling it today and, and sharing all your junk, right? They need to have a willingness to, to commit to your personal spiritual welfare. They need to have a humble recognition that they don't have all the answers. They need to be willing to search those answers out with you in the Scriptures. And lastly, they need to be willing to call you out on your junk and not just let you get away with it. They need to be the type of person that walks up and says, Hey, man, how you doing? And when you, you pop back that, that canned response answer, oh, I'm, I'm okay. They say things like, really, is that your final answer? Is that, that really what you want to go with today? Because I know what's going on. And above all of that, when they do that, you and I need to be willing to open up and share with them what's going on. We need to be willing to confess our junk and actually listen to what they have to say and change in response to that. 
These type of heart friends are not easy to come by. They are a rare and precious, precious gift. And we should seek these types of relationships with sincere, Christ-following, God-fearing, people-loving Christians who are patiently awaiting the same thing we all are, the completion of the work the Lord began in each of us. So why do we need fellowship to help us grow spiritually? The Scripture says, and again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Well, the text tells us that the koinonia, that spiritual fellowship, is a way for the believer to keep warm. You see, in Jesus' day, oftentimes people would travel great distances and they would be uh, trapped out in the middle of nowhere in order to get to the places they needed to go, far away from any lodging. You see, they didn't have like a Bucky's back in the day. They didn't have Love's. Super 8 motels and all that good stuff wasn't a thing back then. And oftentimes when you're walking through the desert, and this may shock you, there wasn't always wood and stuff like that to build a good fire in order to keep warm. So they'd have to lie together and huddle together in order to keep warm. This isn't talking about the type of lying together that one does with their spouse, but rather it's it's an example and a reflection of the intimate, sustaining nature of fellowship and what fellowship does. Fellowship is needed for spiritual growth because it provides something in that particular moment that cannot be provided elsewhere. I need relationships with other believers, not just my wife and kids, in order to help me grow spiritually. I need, I need Ginger Sharp. I need her to remind me of my desperate need for Jesus and the calling that God has set before me. I need Caleb Daniel to do what he does well in reminding me and, and challenging my preconceived notions of culture and people. I need these relationships in order to be, as, as the Bible tells us, to that we do this in order to present every Christian mature in Christ. I need these types of relationships to be made mature in Christ because without it, I'm going to lack something. The relationships that we have are God-ordained means of us to be grown into the image and likeness of God. And secondly, the text tells us that, that spiritual fellowship is a safeguard against attack. Because we live in a broken and sinful and fallen world, we need one another for protection. When the colonists came over to America in the 1600s, uh, they came to a land where the winters were harsh and extremely difficult to survive. And the, the local inhabitants were less than hospitable, to say the least. So they would, they would build themselves around themselves walls. And they would build houses together in tight-knit communities close by. And they would surround themselves with walls in order to, to help keep a watchful eye on one another and help ward off would-be attackers. And so as that community was a, a protection for their very lives, so too is spiritual fellowship for the life of the believer. We need community to withstand the attacks of the enemy. Spiritual fellowship amongst the saints is part of the God-ordained fortress created and meant for the protection of the believer. And lastly, the text tells us that, text tells us that we are held together as the body of Christ by a third party. The author in that verse 12 strays from his original line of thought, almost as if mid-thought he, he discovered something that intrigued him, some sort of valuable insight that he wants all of us to take hold of today. He says, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. As I said earlier today, uh, this morning, that this passage was used in Narcy and I's wedding. It was a beautiful ceremony and, and quite frankly, the happiest day of my life. And in, in weddings, I've seen couples use unity candles, the whole sand in a jar thing, and sometimes the washing of feet to, to demonstrate the uniqueness of their bond. And Narcy and I chose to tie together a, a three-strand cord. See, the officiator of our wedding when he was conducting premarital counseling for Narcy and I, he made sure that Narcy and I knew that our marriage was not always going to be sunshine and rainbows. And truthfully, up to that point in our relationship, it had been quite blissful to say the least. We hadn't really experienced any hardships relationally, at least not at that point. But he knew that from experience that eventually we would have some trials together, that there would be uh, 
that a time would come when Narcy and I didn't like each other very much. That there would be late nights and early morning diaper changes. That there would be times when one of us got sick and the other one had to bear the load of the family. He knew in those moments that the puppy love that we had and the affections that we had for each other at that time wouldn't be enough to sustain us. We would need an inexhaustible source of love, grace, kindness, and mercy. Jesus is the only inexhaustible resource, the only inexhaustible source of love and kindness. He never runs out of grace for you. The Bible tells us that his mercies are new for us every morning. That means this morning too, folks. He's a bottomless well for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, fellowship is about being in community with other believers who are human. There are going to be times when we get it wrong and we sin against one another. There's going to be times when I say something that you don't like. There's going to be time. Well, and let's be honest. I mean, we're talking about me here, folks. There are going to be times when I look at you and you don't like it, too. We're going to have conflict. It's going to happen. But spiritual fellowship requires us to learn how to resolve conflict in a way that maintains the bond of unity and love that we have in Christ Jesus. See, Paul tells us that Jesus proved his love for us in this, that, that while we were enemies with God, while, while we hated God, that Christ gave his life for us. He took the step towards you and me first, folks, not the other way around. In every conflict, there's always somebody, some party that has to move forward first in order for resolution to, to happen. That reconciliation, that, that picture of what reconciliation looks like as Christ followers should permeate and infect and affect every single conversation we have, every interaction we have. And every single time that we have conflict, that reconciliation should be mirrored in the way that we resolve it with one another. This is the rope that Narcy and I tied together on September 21st, 2013. Notice I didn't have to look at my notes for that. It's good. It's good. Yeah. This, is the, this is the rope that Narcy and I tied together. In a, in a moment, we're going to partake of the elements here together. I want you to see the importance of the symbolism here. You see, there's, there's three elements to community, or excuse me, to communion this morning. Three elements. And most of y'all are looking there going, well, there's only two things on the table. There's, there's three elements here. The first, of course, is the bread, the body of Christ broken for you and for me. The second, the, the blood, right? The cup, the wine, the, the grape juice that, that represents Jesus' blood that was poured out as the propitiation, the satisfaction for your sins and mine this morning. But what's the third thing? The third thing is you, and that third thing is me. Without, without the body of Christ coming together, without the saints coming together in their involvement in fellowship without us coming to the table together, giving thanks and glory to God for what he has done through his son, Jesus. There is no communion without the active engagement in the fellowship of the saints and the believers. The elements here, they are nothing more than just bread and juice. They don't mean anything. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, Christ died. We we here this morning, we are that joy that was set before him. Casey, you were that joy. Do you know that? How awesome is that? You're that joy that was set before him. You're the gladly, the glad reason that Jesus jumped up on the cross for you this morning. This morning, if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus for your salvation, I, I invite you to do so. Don't leave this place today without putting your trust in him. Don't, don't leave here. It's not too late this morning. I, I, hear me, folks. No matter where you are in life, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there's nothing you've done that's so, so heinous and so wretched that his blood isn't thick enough to cover this morning. As I said to you, his mercies are new every morning. This morning, those mercies are new and they're being offered to you if you haven't put your trust in him today. Commit to follow him today. Give him your life. 
I did it six years ago, man, and I'm telling you, it was the greatest decision I ever made. He took my mess and made it a message. He changed everything. And I invite you today that if you haven't put your trust in him, today is the day. Today is the day that everything can change. That everything can change for the better. I just want everybody here this morning, if, you, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus today, or maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, and you're not seeing the, the life transformation that you're wanting to see, the power of the gospel made manifest in your life, would, would you join me this morning in making a commitment to the Lord right now? Would you, would you help me this morning as well to make a commitment to honor the, the commitment we've made to Jesus by entering into spiritual fellowship here with this body of Christ here, and then begin... To learn what that means to walk this thing out. If I could have my communion workers come up here and, and help me out, please. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you this morning from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. starts in verse 23. The Apostle Paul tells us that for I, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this is the cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Father, I I thank you for your community of saints. I praise your name for the blessing of being in spiritual fellowship with your body through Jesus. I thank you for the folks here this morning that have made a commitment to honor their relationship with you by committing to be a part of this body, Lord. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it is through your strength that we walk out this Christian life grounded in the knowledge that you, Lord, you who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. I pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.